chapter 8. Oh, I should also mention that starting today, third service, there's a high school, Sunday school class during third service out in the bus. So if you have high schoolers, you want to keep that in mind. And also next Sunday, uh, we're going to be having communion on Sunday morning. So something else to keep in mind. 1 Corinthians, as we've been going through this book, we've now come to chapter 8, and this begins a section that's really the next three chapters are involved answering an issue that came up to Paul, questioning about the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Seems like a large section to be spent on a, on a subject that would seem so irrelevant to us. It was something that was a big deal to them. In those days there in Corinth, the people would worship a lot of pagan gods, and Corinth was full of pagan temples. Most of their social life surrounded between pagan temples and athletic events. That was kind of where the hub of society was. When they would offer meat for these foreign uh, phony gods these pagan gods, they would bring the meat and present it, and it would be divided into three parts. A part of the meat would be burned up in a sacrifice. Another part of the meat would be set aside for the priests. It was kind of the tip to the priest. And then the other third of the meat was, was given back to the people, and they were to go and celebrate at home with their friends and have a dinner that would be kind of commemorating this pagan god. Now, the priests didn't need all of the meat that was given to them, and so they would sell it out the back door to the, the uh, meat markets, and they would sell it in the open market. That was probably the best meat that you could get was the meat that had been given to these priests. Now, the issue came in for the Christians would be, what do you do? about this meat that has been sacrificed to pagan idols. Because they would have friends, if you're going to have a barbecue, there's a real good chance that that's where that meat came from. And so, boy, should we partake of that? And then, of course, they would have friends who weren't Christians who would invite them to their son's birthday party that would be held there at some pagan temple and, and say, hey, oh, come on, we're having a barbecue for my son. Well, what do we do about that? And there's nothing specifically in Scripture. Now, on the other hand, people who had been saved out of that idolatrous environment could really have an issue with it. They might be real sensitive about it because they just came out of that. But to some of the Jews who got saved, it wouldn't be that big of a deal because they hadn't been involved in the pagan idolatry from the beginning. So they would look at it and say, it's just meat. Who cares that it was sacrificed to an idol? As he goes on to say later in the chapter, you know, those aren't real gods anyway. It was sacrificed to nothing. And it's silly to throw away a perfectly good piece of meat just because somebody sacrificed it to some imaginary god. And so there was an issue and a dispute as to exactly what you should do. And the questions were things like, well, if somebody serves it to you and you don't know it was sacrificed to an idol, is that okay? If you go buy it in the market and they don't say whether it was or not, should we have a don't ask, don't tell policy about 
idolatrous meat or, you know, or should you just go, I don't care who it was sacrificed to. A good burger is a good burger. Bring it on. And so different people had different feelings and the connotations that went along with it. And so Paul gives them, without setting rules down for them, he gives them some principles to understand and applying to this issue. And really, as I say, spends several chapters teaching principles that would help them to know how to deal with this issue. Now, the chances of you having buying meat at the meat market that has at one point been sacrificed to an idol is pretty slim. The chances of your having someone invite you over for some idolatrous meat is pretty slim. So you might think, can't we just go over these chapters kind of fast? No, because the principles that Paul is teaching are important for us in all sorts of areas of our lives because there are a whole lot of areas of our lives where the Bible doesn't specifically say you can do this or you can't do that. Often people want to teach, treat the Bible as if it's a rule book for life, but the problem is there just aren't a lot of, there are some rules in here. You don't have to ask, well, let's see, is it okay to lie or not? Is it okay to kill someone? Or is it okay to steal something that belongs to someone else? Because the Bible clearly teaches on some of those things. But on other issues, we have to take what the Bible teaches us and try to draw an interpretation from it. And as a result, we so often come to different conclusions. Some of our, some of our ideas develop over time, sometimes a different culture, sometimes a different time in history will cause us to have different standards of behavior. And so there are those issues that affect us. Now, I could bring up a whole lot of issues that might affect us today, but then I'm going to have people arguing about them. And so for the most part, let's just think about some issues that in the past were issues for Christians. Fifty years ago, it was thought that for a Christian to do something on Sunday, other than just go to church, was wrong. In fact, and you saw that if you saw the movie Chariots of Fire, where a guy took a stand because he was an Olympic athlete and he was absolutely convinced that for him to run a race on the Lord's Day on Sunday would be sinful. And so he took a stand, ended up having to run a different event that wasn't his best event. And in slow motion with romantic music, he won the gold medal, and, and you know Christians go, oh, what a beautiful movie. And then other Christians look at him and go, that's silly. That's like teaching legalism. Why, why can't you run on a Sunday? That's silly. And people would use scriptures about the Sabbath, but then you go, but Sunday isn't the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. So if you're going to, don't move it to Sunday and then put all those rules. On the other hand, there are some nice things about the fact that, you know, it used to be that on Sunday Christians would just take the day to relax and come and worship the Lord and they wouldn't do certain things. Parts of that developed into silly things like you can't run on Sunday. But it also involves some of the laws that it would have been kind of nice that all the bars are closed down on Sunday and other things are. But then how about the, the teaching that many Christians had that you shouldn't read the comics on Sunday when the paper comes out because it's the Lord's Day. You should keep it and read it later on Monday. You look and go, what? No, that, there were really people who believed that. Now, 
You know, 50 years ago, there were a whole lot of Christians, not as many today, who believed that it was sinful for a Christian woman, based on Scripture and their interpretation of it, it would be a sin for a woman to wear makeup, to put any kind of outward adorning of beauty on your face to add to or enhance that which was your outward appearance. Now, today, there are very few people who believe that it's a sin for a Christian woman to wear makeup. In fact, there are many of us who would feel that it would be a sin for women not to wear makeup. But these are the kinds of things that are culturally determined based on our understanding of Scripture. Now, there are some people whose conscience tells them that a Christian should never listen to secular music. Now, there's some really bad secular music that probably no one should listen to, but there isn't anything in the Bible that would say, oh, the only music you can listen to is Christian music. But there are some people who feel really strongly about that. They're sensitive about it. Maybe they were involved in all sorts of pagan practices that involved that music, and it brings back that connotation. But then there are others of us who feel you know, that that's, oh, come on, you know, that, that music, it's not going to hurt anything. I remember, and it was a little embarrassing when my son William was like four years old in Sunday school, and they had a special worship leader come in to lead worship, and, and they said, does anyone have a special, you know, worship song that you want to sing? And William said, he raised his hand, and he said, do you know round, round, get around, I get around? <laughs> And they're like, a pastor's kid? Yeah, but today, you know, I don't know how many people feel that way. There was a time when, you know, if you went to church and you weren't wearing a suit, oh, you were being disrespectful to God because you want to dress up in your best for Sunday. I'm looking around today, and I, I know I saw Ken in a suit today, but other than that, I, now, if you see me wearing a suit, it doesn't mean that I'm being respectful to God. If I'm wearing a suit, it means someone died. <laughs> or they got married, which is basically the same thing. So, but these sort of things, these sorts of things kind of develop over time. And, and we can so often decide that the, this is God. This is just, you know, here's the rule. Here's what you ought to do. There were times in the past when when pastors didn't think anything of smoking cigars, for instance. Some of the greatest pastors like Harry Ironsides and Charles Spurgeon and people like that would, would enjoy sitting there with a good stogie. Well, you know, then today most people, many people would go, oh, that would be stumbling. And so, you know, I don't do that. I don't feel, you know, I don't have a verse that, I mean, I have verses that could support it, but it's just easier not to. But how do we make these and plus, I don't like the smell, so it's easy. But how do we figure out how do we deal with these issues? Because there are a bunch of issues in our lives. Probably most of the decisions we make ethically about how to live our lives, there isn't a real specific hard and fast biblical command that makes it clear. And so it's important for us to understand these passages here in 1 Corinthians because it'll help us in dealing with a lot of issues and understanding how we should relate to each other. But in introducing this passage in chapter 8, the first three verses, Paul gives some principles that are so powerful and so important for us to understand. Everything that we do in life 
in a lot of ways, connects to the principles that he shares in these first three verses. And so we will be looking at them this morning and hopefully seeing some things that will help us. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, concerning things offered to idols, first principle, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, this seems to set off knowledge and love as being two contradictory concepts. You have to choose knowledge or love. But Paul is certainly not saying knowledge is a bad thing. He is saying that there's an ugly side effect that can kick in that sometimes accompanies knowledge. And he's warning them about it and giving them another offsetting concept that will help them in their dealing with and application of knowledge. And knowledge is the accumulation of information. Knowledge is the equivalent to education. Now, again, Paul certainly couldn't be against knowledge. He devoted his life to the acquisition of knowledge and the dispersion of knowledge. He, he wrote, you know, 14 or perhaps 13, some people would say, books of the New Testament, communicating knowledge for his entire life. He was a man who had a profoundly powerful education and a great intellectual gift and a desire to share that information that he had with others. So he's not knocking knowledge, but he is saying one of the dangers of knowing a lot is it can puff you up. It can cause you to become proud. It can cause you to believe that you are superior to those who don't have the knowledge that you have. In this case, it was clear that that had become an issue with some of the Corinthians because they looked at it and said, how can you have a problem with meat that was sacrificed to idols? Again, as I said before, the idols represent nothing. It's silly. You are superstitious. It's good meat. Go ahead and eat it. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, those who had that understanding could have easily taken that position, and no doubt they did, flaunting their liberty, flaunting that which because they knew it was okay, that was okay. Now, in the same way, there can be things that, with a certain amount of knowledge, you can gain a perspective on a cultural trend or, you know, uh, foibles that certain people have, and you can say, well, that is silly. I mean, one area in which this can definitely be the case is in the area of what words are acceptable to use and what words are bad words. Because there are certain words that during one time or in one country, everyone thinks they're fine. But then in another culture or another time, they're thought of as being bad words, words that you wouldn't use. And when you begin to read a lot historically or you begin to delve into old literature, classical literature, you realize, for instance, from reading Shakespeare, there are some words that at the time that that was written, they were considered perfectly proper. But if you use those same words today in polite society, it would be considered inappropriate. Now, a person with knowledge would say, it's just a word, Words are just letters and syllables that are put together to be a symbol of something. Why should you think that this word 
is bad when a word that means exactly the same thing, you think it isn't bad. And it's silly. And sometimes even, again, from one country to the next, the standards, even among the Christians, might be different. And so the knowledgeable person, you may just go, well, that's silly. And so I'm going to use whatever language I want to use. Because I don't feel it's a sin to use words that are offensive to you just because you are so ignorant that you think that some words are bad and some words are good. To me, they're just all words. Now, that might be a defensible position. But what will it do in terms of your capacity to relate to others, connect with others, get along with others? It's probably going to get in the way. You'll hurt people. You will offend people. But the arrogant position is to say, because I can defend myself, then this is fine, and I'm going to do it because of my knowledge. Now, as a result, people can start to resent anyone who is educated. There are a lot of people in this world who have a bias against education, who have an anti-intellectual perspective. They feel that For instance, that if you love God and then you go to seminary, you'll quit loving God. Now, of course, that's foolish and unfair. But how did people get that perspective? Because they've seen it happen a lot of times. The fact is, sometimes when you get educated, you do become an arrogant person. You do become, you know, you you start thinking that you're superior to others and better than others. It doesn't have to happen. In fact, it shouldn't happen. But as Paul said, knowledge can definitely puff you up, especially knowledge that comes in and you don't have an outlet for it. If all you're doing is learning more stuff and then as you connect with other people, what you want to do is impress them with how much you know that's much more than what they know. And so we create very large words to communicate concepts that really could be communicated much better with small words, but we use the bigger word in order to make people know how smart we are. That's a lot of what some education is about. And Paul says, that kind of knowledge puffs up. But love, on the other hand, edifies. The word edify just means to build up. We refer to a large building as an edifice. And Paul's saying, You can either take what you learn and use it to build other people up in a loving way, or you can take what you know and you can defeat people and you can impress people and you can make yourself look better than they are with that kind of arrogance, but then not sharing from a perspective of love, not taking what you know and passing it on to others in a way that will help them to grow and to be built up. And it's a, it's a challenge that we all have to face as we look at our lives and ask ourselves, how am I affecting and impacting the people who I encounter? Am I impressing them but causing them to feel small and inferior? Or am I giving to them, am I caring about them in a way that causes them to feel lifted up and encouraged and empowered? And Paul would say, that's how God would have you to do it. Well, what does this have to do with doubtful things? He would say, look, 
don't just take what you know, and because you are sure of yourself and other people aren't, make them feel just really old-fashioned and stupid for thinking the way that they do. Don't make fun of them for them having some of the sentiments and quirks that they have. Don't just tell them, you know what, this is the new way, you're old school, forget you, I don't care what you think, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But instead, it's so important that we consider in everything that we do, what's good for the people that we are interacting with? Is it just for us to look good? Or is it for us to stoop to wherever we have to go to connect with them in a way that allows them to be elevated? It might be something just as simple as explaining, trying to explain to them what you see and what you know that perhaps they don't know. Because the truth is we all have different perspectives on everything. And if we communicate in a loving way, perhaps we can take that knowledge that we have, share it with someone else, and they can be elevated, they can be lifted up, their understanding can be expanded, and they can be set free from some of the things that are shackling them and are are chaining them up and holding them back. But love is what needs to be added to knowledge for that to happen. Anything other than that is knowledge that tears down. Well, I used to, when I was younger, I would love to find someone who was from any different religious perspective than mine. And it didn't have to be some whole other religion. Just somebody who is from a little different brand of Christianity than I am. Because, man, when I would talk to them and share my superior knowledge, I could make them feel so insecure in their own faith and their own perspective. And as a result, I found that I was able to make them feel bad. And I thought that was some sort of a victory. Boy, I'm glad I have so much. I know more about their faith than they do. And I can take their faith and throw it in their face and make them feel bad. But I didn't see people being persuaded or accepting Jesus Christ as a result of me pointing out the foolishness of their beliefs. What I found is they just, after they licked their wounds, they would go back and study a little bit harder so that they could learn more information so that they could combat whatever I was sharing with them and saying. They became even more equipped and therefore more immune to the truths of the Scriptures as a result of my interaction. Was I lifting them up and building them up? No. I was actually making them stronger in that in which they were in error. Because if we share knowledge apart from love, we will only cause people to be more hardened and stuck in their error. And we will be less likely to draw them away from that in which they are wrong and toward something that may be edifying and uplifting and helpful for them. And so Paul says, as a first principle, understand this. All the knowledge in the world, if it's not speaking the truth in love, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work. It's not going to build anything. It's only going to tear down. Later on in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, as he talks about love, he says, you know, if you have all knowledge and you understand all mysteries and you don't have love, no profit at all. 
He says, as far as that goes, if you have all the gifts functioning in your life in a powerful way and you're sacrificing yourself in a, in a, in a you know, impressive manner without love, it's a sounding brass, a tinkling cymbal, it profits you nothing, you're wasting your time, without love, nothing else matters. Now, does that mean you substitute love for knowledge? No. But you take knowledge and you allow it to flow through you in a way that it's communicated with love. And you can enhance other people's understanding of life and issues and things we patiently share with them. And they don't have to see it our way either. But what they have to know when they leave is that you love them. Beyond all else, otherwise you just wasted your time. Now, there are some people who just can't get that. You can say it and you can try and you can pour your heart out. And they are so stuck on what they believe that they can't see your love, that they can't hear your love. This goes both ways. But it's important for us as believers when we have differences to be able to communicate knowledge in such a way that love pervades it. Otherwise, all we do is tear each other down instead of building each other up. And so this is the first principle that he shares. Be careful. If you are taking in and you're not giving out, then ultimately you're not building anything. That's what happens to people who get educated, but they never teach or they never use what they're learning. There are some people who just love acquiring information. And once in a while, maybe they have a chance to go on Jeopardy and win some money. But other than that, they just spend their life accumulating worthless information. Now, there isn't any information that's truly worthless. There's a way to find whereby you can learn to use anything that you know. But you have to care enough about people to take what you know and put it into action communicated in a way that lifts them up and helps them. So keep that flowing. Make sure that you're taking in. Make sure that you're also giving out in a loving way. Now, secondly, he says, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Now, again, this could sound like, well, you mean you can't know anything? If I think I know anything, then I don't know anything. Again, Paul isn't just saying, you can't know anything. There are people today, philosophically, there are a lot of people who have locked on to this idea that there are no absolutes. There's nothing that you can really know. And that's become a popular philosophy. And even among Christians, it's pervading the Christian world in terms of saying, in this postmodern era, we need to get off saying that there are right and wrong. Instead, we need to just realize it's just all relative and there are no absolutes at all. But God, his word, he said, it's truth. My word is truth, John 17, 17. And we don't need to give up the idea of truth but what we need to understand is that there's a whole lot more knowledge and a whole lot more truth than just what you and I are able to possess in and of ourselves. And so he says, look, if you think you have knowledge, if you think you know anything, you're smart, you need to realize you're not as smart as you think you are. 
Because true education will always lead us to discover not just what we can know, but we will discover how much there is out there that we can know. So when you're younger, you think you almost know everything that there is that's useful. I remember when I was younger, I thought I was pretty smart because other people would say how smart I was. I knew more than a lot of people. And I felt like I have a pretty good amount of knowledge. But the older I get, the more I read, the more I study, the more I realize, man, there is so much more that I don't know than what I know. Now, as a result, I, I probably become less dogmatic about certain things. And that becomes an insecure place. And I realize sometimes as we go through the Bible and as I'm teaching the Bible, we'll come to a passage of Scripture and I may say, I'm not sure exactly what the proper interpretation of this is. And some people feel really uncomfortable with that. Other people are so smart that they will come and tell me what the real interpretation of it is and, and fix me. But it's just that, and, and, and believe me, it isn't that I don't have faith in the Word of God. It's that I do. Now, there's something in the, the study of learning called epistemology. That's just a fancy way for what you know to be true. How do you know what truth is? How do you know what's true and what isn't? Now, our modern society tells us that there is no epistemology, really. And they say it in a very humble way that sounds really good. There are people now who are writing in the Christian world who are making it sound really humble to be able to act like, you know, we just don't know what truth is, and we just need to understand everyone's truth is their truth, and we need to stop being so dogmatic. And, and I agree with them in part. But here's the thing. I have an epistemology that can't lose, and it is absolute, and it's this book. It's the Bible. I believe every word of this book was breathed by God and is absolutely true. But the older I get, the more I realize my interpretation of those words can sometimes be wrong. My take on it, my spin on it, my application of it can be wrong. I can be wrong. I am wrong a lot. But I need to hang on to this book because I know it's not. Once you start to mess with this book, once you start to say, well, maybe some of it's true and maybe some of it isn't, that's a real slippery slope. And that's the path that all of these postmodern emergent people are, are slipping down because they're going, well, you know, who knows what's true and what isn't in the Bible? Some of it, maybe it's... Well, once you start doing that, here's what happens. I become the keeper of truth. It's whatever I think God probably really said. If I go, there's something Jesus said that I don't like, I just go, eh, he probably didn't say it. That's probably, that part of the Bible is probably just to be discounted. Well, it's not going to take me long before every part of the Bible that convicts my heart, I decide it's not real. And now I'm God. And now I get to call the shots. Now, there are things in the Bible that I don't understand, lots of them. There are some things in the Bible that I'm not quite sure how they fit together. But I am not going to to concede that even one syllable of this book is not God's word because I need a solid basis for truth. 
I need to trust something. And so I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, partly because I've seen it so many times proved to be true when people thought it was false, but also from a very practical basis, I can't decide which part of it ought to be believed and which part of it shouldn't be believed. And so as a result, I choose on a very practical basis, I just choose to believe it all. And if I'm wrong, okay, I'm wrong. But I would rather be wrong someday because God said, oh, I was just speaking figuratively there. And I go, I go, oh, sorry, God, I thought you were speaking literally. I missed that one. Then to say, God, I had no idea that you meant what you said. So I can sit there and try to explain it. Like, for instance, where Jesus said, if you don't forgive other people, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. What does that mean? I'm not sure. But if he meant what he said, I better forgive. When people do things wrong against me, I better forgive them. I better learn to let go of it, just in case he's telling the truth. And that's the way the Bible is. Now, again, Paul in saying, if you think you know anything, he's not saying that you don't know anything. But he says, you know nothing yet as you ought to know. Let your understanding and awareness and let what you learn let you know that you could be wrong and that you don't know everything. It's one of the most horrible diseases ever that comes from, as he says in verse 1 of being puffed up, is a, a complete inability to be told that you're wrong, to be able to ever admit, I'm wrong. See, what that shows is that I really think I've learned everything that I really need to know. I think I've got a handle on this. And people who become puffed up and believe and they're so sure of themselves that they can defend themselves vociferously, those kinds of people are doomed to continue to repeat mistakes, continue to head on a path that's not constructive. And every one of us is capable of that because each one of us can have blind spots where we don't recognize that we don't know everything that we thought we knew. And so Paul, as his second principle here, says, it's fine to know, but make sure that in the process you realize there's a whole lot more that you don't know. Oh, there are times when I'll form an opinion about a certain situation, and yet I find out there's so much more information that I didn't know about. And as a result, here I can be all fired up about something. This happens in our world because of the, the shoddy job that we do in digging into news stories. There's just so much news, we can't cover the stories completely. And yet, you look, and especially when there's a celebrity who's accused of a crime, we all know that they're guilty. We just know it. Why? Because they look so guilty. Why? Because, oh, you know, they don't treat innocent people this way. Oh, the system's never wrong. And so it's very comfortable for us to have very strong opinions. This happens in politics, where we have an opinion about a, a public person, but we know almost nothing about them. We, if we went and met them, our perspective would change drastically. 
If there are things that we see that we feel strongly about, most of the time I would suggest to you that when we express a strong opinion about something, there is a lot of information that if we had that information, our perspective would change completely. And yet we lock ourselves in based on insufficient data and we become divisive and, and we take sides and we fight and, and, and we hate other people as a result of things that we really know so little about. Well, what is it in life that you know a lot about? Paul would say, there's still a whole lot that you don't know about that. It's why I think for someone to take the position of an atheist is so sad. Because if you come to the conclusion that there is no God, what you're saying is, boy, in this vast universe of which I know so little about, and no matter what everyone else thinks or says, I know there's not a God. I'm certain. That's one thing I'm sure of. And I think, wow. I mean, how much do you really know of all existence? And on the basis of that information you're going to come to the conclusion and argue that there isn't a God or that there isn't anything? Now, I can appreciate someone who's an agnostic who says, I don't know. In what I know, I haven't met a God. Okay, that's honest. I'll, I'll give you that. But to, to say that you know there's not a God? Come on, how much do you know? Now, I know there is a God, because I have met him within the realm of my own personal experience. And so I know he is. I know who he is and what he is and what he does. But how much do I really know of him? Well, not as much as I think. And so in every area, humility should let us hold back the strength of our opinions because we realize whatever we know, there's a whole lot else that we don't know. And so Paul says, before we get into this whole thing of meat sacrifice to idols, remember this. I don't care how smart you think you are. There's a whole lot that you don't know. He goes on to say in verse 3, But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Now he makes it about relationship. In the first verse, he talked about taking what you know and using it to build up others through love. In the second verse, he reminds you there's a lot that you don't know. And now in the third verse, he says, if you love God, you're known by God. Now, this is a tough one to decipher in some ways. Because, you know, we say that we love God, and we attempt to love God. Jesus so much of what he says ties in here. He said, if you love me, then he told Peter, then feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Jesus also said, if somebody loves me, they'll keep my commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another. So again, God himself says, you show your love for me by obeying me in doing what I tell you to do, and that is love each other build each other up in humility. Take what you have and make it available to others. But now he says, if anyone loves God, this one is known by God. 
Now, I would have turned it around and said it differently. And some commentators actually try to play with the words and twist it around and say, you know, that if you love God, then you know God. But that's clearly not what it says. Now, it says that in other places, certainly. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. We're told that the love for the world is contrary to the love of God. John said, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But here he's saying, God knows you if you love him. It's language of relationship. It's language of reciprocity. But it's also emphasizing that it's a lot more important that God loves you than that you love God. We love him because he first loved us. We love anyone because he first loved us. We know him, but he knew us first. He knew us before the foundation of the world. And people will often say, well, do you know God? We'll, we'll talk to people. Hey, you know the Lord? And we can very flippantly go, yeah, I know the Lord. Oh, really? When did you get to know him? Well, I went to church when I was a kid. I really can't remember not knowing him. But I now go to church, and I committed my life to Jesus Christ, and I, yeah, I know him. Really? Back up a verse. You think you know him, and you do know him to a degree, but how much do you really know him, really, in a deep relationship form? Probably not as much as you might think, and that makes us feel uncomfortable except our relationship with God is not primarily about, first of all, us knowing Him. It's about Him knowing us. We are getting to know Him. Like Paul said in Philippians, I count everything else in my life as dung compared to knowing Him. But he said, it's not that I've arrived yet. I am getting to know Him. And it's true. I know Him better than I knew him a year ago. I know him better than I knew him 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But do I know him? In a sketchy way. Honestly, when I start thinking I know him, then he does something that throws me for a loop and causes me to wonder whether I know him at all. But I know this, if I love him, he knows me. That means he sees all of my failure. He sees everything that I do, and at first, that's a horrible threat. He knows me. He knows what I was thinking just now. He knows what I've been thinking this week. He knows what I did when no one else was around. Yeah, he does. Should that scare you? Not at all, because he loves you passionately and completely. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the middle of our worst day, he looks at us and he goes, I know. I get it. He knows what we do and what we think, but he knows us well and still accepts us and loves us. Oh, I'm glad that I've accepted Jesus Christ. I'm glad that it can be said of me as many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. And so I have accepted Jesus Christ, and I've gotten to know him over the years. But what means a lot more to me is that he has accepted me 
and he knows me. And that helps me to deal with not only what I know, but what I don't know. When I realize he knows what I don't know. He knows me so well that he knows my future. He knows my heart. He knows not only when I fail, but he knows and understands why I fail. And he sees behind all of the cause of that, and he chooses to love me, and he chooses to pray for me, interceding for me at the right hand of the Father. I do something horrible. And the accusation from Satan comes to God. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, makes that accusation. And Jesus, my high priest, says, it's okay. I know him. I understand. I know what's going on. I know what he was trying to do. I know when he fails, but I know the plans I have for him. I know what I am going to do through this. I am so glad that Jesus knows me, that he really does understand me in a way that I can't understand myself. Other people may think they know me. People who love me, they have a certain understanding of me. Some things I do don't surprise them. But, you know, I'll do things sometimes that people who think they know me wonder if they really do. And that happens to all of us. And we have these divisions between us, and we have these misunderstandings that cause a, a ripping and a tearing of relationships. And we go, can't you understand we find ourselves in these discussions where we're trying to explain ourselves and another person that we thought knew us doesn't. And that just comes with the territory of life. It's because I don't know enough and neither does the other person. But it's good to know in all of that that God knows me. I don't ever have to explain myself to God I don't ever have to make excuses to God, and I also don't ever have to hide from God. Adam and Eve, after they had sinned in the garden, one of the awful consequences of their sin was they thought God didn't know them anymore. And when God came calling in the garden, they tried to cover themselves. They tried to hide themselves with fig leaves. God made them. There was nothing about them that was disturbing to him or confusing to him or disgusting to him. He knew him very well. He knows you really well as well, and me too. And I love that about God. And what we do in our lives, decisions we make, ways we conduct ourselves, look, we all think we're doing the right thing when we do it. And we're all wrong a lot of the time. 